And all God's people said, Habakkuk. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone, including those of you tuning in from our other venues in Calgary and also other parts of the province. Now, you probably thought that little clip was to introduce you to the next minor prophet we're looking at in our walk through the Old Testament, and that is true. Uh, but it also is to prepare you for some good news. You see, this past Friday, yes, on the day that the royal wedding took place, Gwen, my wife, and I became grandparents again. And to think that 30 years ago when we arrived at this place, our oldest son was six months old. My goodness. Anyways, and what I'm especially excited about is Matt and Arian finally used my favorite names, both a first and middle name, to name our new grandson, which is Habakkuk von Hoffenshore. Doesn't that have a nice kind of German ring to it? Well, I thought so, but unfortunately Matt and Arian didn't. So seriously, they named him Evan Levi Shore, younger brother to Ethan and Ella. And uh, once again, we praise God for his creative power and for the safe arrival of Evan. Okay, I invite you now to begin hunting in your Bible for the book of uh, Habakkuk. And uh, while you're doing that, I should have plenty of time to give you some background to the book we're about to look at. Habakkuk was written after the fall of Nineveh and the uh, nation of Assyria, which you will recall was the superpower uh, at that time. We looked at uh, Nineveh and that whole situation um, in our study of Nahum and Zephaniah. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 6 in Habakkuk, the Lord talks about raising up the Babylonians, uh, referred to as Chaldeans in some of your translations, um, to bring judgment on Habakkuk's people, which we know happened in 586 BC, about 25 years after Nineveh was conquered by the Babylonians. Therefore, the book of Habakkuk is most likely the last book written just before Babylon invaded and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And it took every surviving able man and woman back to Babylon as slaves for a period of about 70 years known as the exile. And so let's dig into this book. But before we do, would you stand with me as we dedicate our time in the Word to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we recognize, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to actually help us to understand the word. We ask, Lord, that um, you would teach us today what it means, Lord, to, uh, to wrestle with some of the issues that Habakkuk did, what it means to deal with storms and struggles in our lives uh, in a way... Um, uh, that we still can have peace in our hearts. And so I ask, Lord, that you would teach us uh, by your Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, you would focus our minds, and then you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I prayed in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you've already heard, this um, past Friday, most of the world stopped and joined in on the royal wedding celebration of Prince William 
and Kate Middleton. Reports indicate that over a million people uh, made a special trip to England to be part of this special occasion just to catch a glimpse of the royal couple uh, on their wedding day. Uh, billions, of course, watched it either in person or on television. Have you ever wondered why so many people are drawn, were drawn to this particular occasion, to this particular wedding? Well, I asked a few people uh, why they think that people were drawn to this, why um, billions of dollars are being spent on souvenirs and so forth to, related to anything to do with them as a couple and so forth. And a common theme that I heard was a wedding like this uh, represents the dreams and the hopes of most people. The hope of being in a lifelong loving relationship. The hope of being treated like royalty. The hope of experiencing the good life often best characterized by the life of a prince and a princess. We all dream of living the good life and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is life rarely turns out the way that we hoped and dreamed. And when our dream gets shattered by reality, so often we're devastated. I mean, we need only to go back to the last royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di to realize you can have everything that this world has to offer and still experience relational heartbreak and tragedy. Regardless of your status in society, your wealth, your position, and so forth, life can start out with the greatest of hopes and dreams and still be cut down by illness, by an accident, or by some natural uh, tragedy uh, and disaster like an earthquake or a tornado. We can be madly in love with someone and then one day get blindsided by the announcement that it's over. We can launch a career or a business with great promise and instead of rising to the pinnacle that we dreamed about, we land in the pits. The scenarios are all different, but the disappointment is often a part of life. When the good life that we have longed for, that we have strived for, always just seems beyond our grasp, or when it's ripped from us, because of a relational breakdown or, or, or some unfortunate circumstance, the disappointment is enormous. And often it causes us to de demand answers from God, an explanation why things are the way that they are. I mean, even people who do not believe in God get mad at the God they don't believe in. And they demand answers from the God they don't believe in. Because life isn't turning out the way they'd hoped. Well, Habakkuk was attempting to sort out disappointment in his life, and particularly in his world. And he had questions burning in his heart that he wanted answers to. And so while the other minor prophets, which we've looked at, addressed the Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel, or the southern kingdom of Judah, warned them of coming judgment and so forth. Habakkuk does none of that. He doesn't address any particular group. He records his conversation with God 
about his confusion over the ways of God and also the silence of God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? You see, Habakkuk is bewildered. The world's a mess. His own country, Judah, is, is full of immorality and lawlessness and injustice. The, uh, the economy's gone down the tank. Uh, its judicial system, its political uh, system, uh, both of those systems are corrupt. Most of the religious leaders of his day are self-obsessed hypocrites who are teaching what people want to hear rather than God's truth. And it's killing him. And he's wondering why God isn't doing something. Have you ever felt that way? Ever wonder why it seems that evil people seem to prosper and good people seem to suffer? Ever reflect on the poverty and injustice in the world and wonder why God isn't doing something about it? Ever been praying for a loved one who is suffering? Or about finding inner peace after losing your job or after a romantic relationship that meant so much to you exploded in your face? And you feel like... Not only is God not hearing you, but he doesn't even seem to care. Well, then you're beginning to identify a little bit with how Habakkuk was feeling in chapter 1 here of his writings. He was frustrated. He was confused. He was angry. But now I'd like you to turn over to chapter 3 and look down at verse 17. Now look what Habakkuk says here. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, in other words, what he's saying is, though my world is falling apart, look what he goes on to say. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Do you notice that something quite dramatic has changed in Habakkuk's perspective? I mean, in chapter 1, he is frustrated. He's full of burning questions. Here in chapter 3, he's content and at peace. Here in verse 17, he essentially says, if everything I rely on fails, if everything I'm leaning on for stability crumbles, I will trust in the Lord. My confidence in the Lord will not waver. The Lord himself is my strength. And so the question I want to address in the time remaining is, how did Habakkuk come to this place here in chapter 3? How did he move from his soul being in turmoil in chapter 1 
to being at a place of peace in chapter 3? Well, I think we'll find the answer here in his writings. First of all, Habakkuk brought his feelings and his doubts to God. The entire book of Habakkuk centers around two major questions that Habakkuk is wrestling with. Interestingly, the name Habakkuk, by the way, means wrestling. <laughs> God answers the first question, and he doesn't answer the second one, but essentially asks Habakkuk to be patient and to trust him. The first question, or series of questions, I just read from, from chapter 1. And in a summary form, basically, Habakkuk's asking the Lord, Lord, why are you silent? Why aren't you responding to my prayers? It's, it's, it's the mystery of unanswered prayer. Habakkuk is angry at the injustice and the immorality that he sees around him. And what bothers him the most is he's been crying out to God to do something. And of course, like all of us, in his mind, he's got it all planned out. You know, if God was engaged, then God would be doing this and this and this. I mean, it's plain to see. It's obvious. But he's saying, God, why aren't you doing this? Now, if you have unanswered prayer, if you've been going to God over some issue in your life and feel like he's not been hearing you or he's not been responding, you need to hear how God responds to Habakkuk. He basically responds to him in verse 5, and I'm just going to give you what he says in verse 5 in kind of today's vernacular. Habakkuk, the Lord says, I have been answering your prayer. You accuse me of being inactive, but I've been working behind the scenes in ways that you know nothing about. For you see, Habakkuk, I see things you don't see. I know things that you don't know. And even though I'm doing things differently than you would do if you were me, doesn't mean I've been inactive or not responding to your prayers. And then he goes on in verse 6 to explain that he's been planning to use the Babylonians to serve as his instrument of justice on Judah and Jerusalem. And Habakkuk is outraged at the prospect. He can't understand why God would use an evil nation like the Babylonians to be his instrument of justice, which, of course, leads him to ask a second question of God, which we're going to look at in a moment. But for now, I want to remind us that Habakkuk brings his questions, he brings his doubts to God. He doesn't run from God. He doesn't avoid God. He doesn't conclude that God doesn't exist the way that many people do today when they can't make sense of suffering or hardship in life. Years ago, one of Billy Graham's best friends and fellow evangelist, Charles Templeton, turned his back on God because he couldn't understand how a loving God could allow pain and suffering. 
He saw a photo in Life magazine of an African mother holding her child who had died of starvation because of a lack of rain. And Templeton writes, when I saw that photo, I immediately knew it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. Who else but a fiend, he writes, could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? Now the question that I would ask Charles Templeton if he were here is it possible that God provided more than enough food to feed that child but was relying on the rest of humanity to share the abundance of resources that he's already provided? Is it possible that the fiend that you referred to is not God but human beings who could have prevented this child from starving to death just by being generous with the things God's provided, the abundance of things God's provided. See, all that to say that we are far too quick to blame God. We are far too quick to dismiss God when things don't make sense or when life doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. Stuart Briscoe tells how earlier in his pastoral ministry, he would have single young people say to him, I used to be into Jesus and used to be into church, but not anymore. I tried Christianity. I tried the church. It doesn't work. And Briscoe says, when I probed a little further to find out what was behind all of that, I discovered that when they talked about trying Christianity or the church, what they really meant was they tried the young adult ministry not to find Jesus or to know Jesus better, they tried the young adult ministry to find a mate. They expected God to give them a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and when the girl or the boy that they figured that God owed them didn't show up or didn't take an interest in them, they blamed God, and they pulled the plug on God. Like so many people today, they believed in God for what God could do for them rather than for who he is. And when he didn't come through with the goods, well, they were done with him. Those of you who are in love, how would you feel if your lover loved you only for what you could do for them? loved you only for your money or for your possessions or whatever. Wouldn't you find that just a bit repulsive? Now you understand how repulsive it is when we serve God, when we worship Him only because we figure if we do that, then He'll come across with what we really want, and that is the good life. And you see, such people will never experience the peace that Habakkuk had in chapter 3 because ultimate peace and joy is not found in the good things of this life, in a mate, in a good job, in a happy family, in good health, as wonderful as they are. No, Psalm 62.1 makes it very clear. 
that true peace is found in God and God alone. And you're going to spend the rest of your life being restless, being unhappy, seeking after this and that. And you will be restless and unhappy until you find your rest in God. And you start having God's perspective on life. And so even though life is making no sense here to Habakkuk, he turns to God. He doesn't run from God. He doesn't dismiss God. No, he's real before God. He stands before God. He doesn't pull any punches. He isn't afraid to let God know his feelings or to ask God the hard questions that are burning in his heart. But you see, underlying all of that, his hope is in God. He has a deep, unshakable conviction that only God is able to help him make sense of the unexplainable. And even if he doesn't get an, he doesn't get an explanation, he still finds refuge in God. His hope is in him. So let me ask you, when, when life doesn't make sense, when you become aware of abuse or you become aware of injustice and it enrages you, do you block it out? Do you pull the curtains closed on your conscience? Do you stew over it maybe? Or do you bring your questions, your doubts, all these troubling issues to God? and talk to him about it. I believe that God invites us, wants us to come to him. That's why we see examples of it in the life of Job. We see examples of it in the life of Habakkuk. He wants us to wrestle with him over these issues. He invites us to do so, rather than to go perhaps to someone else who will convince us that life is hopeless and to cash it in and to give up on God. God may not always act or respond the way that you think he ought to, but he does want you to come to him with these things and to help you understand his heart, his character, his ways, and through this experience his peace. Habakkuk found peace. Because he brought his feelings, he brought his doubts to God. Furthermore, Habakkuk found peace by choosing to live by faith. As I mentioned a moment ago, when Habakkuk hears that God is going to use the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment on his people, the Israelites, he is incensed. And he essentially says in verse 12, Lord, the Babylonians are a ruthless, immoral people. They deserve to be judged before the Israelites are. I mean, they're cold-blooded people. They're worse than the Israelites. You should be judging them. And in chapter 2, if you read all of it, God basically says, a day is coming when the Babylonians will be judged for their rebellion as well. 
But God goes on to say, Habakkuk, even though you may not understand or agree with my timing or with my ways, even when I don't give you clear answers as to why I do what I do, as my child, I need you to put your faith in me and to trust me and that I am not only a loving God, but I'm also a just God who will ensure that justice is done in my time. I need you to trust me. Notice in chapter 2, verse 4, God challenges Habakkuk saying, the righteous will live by his faith. That little phrase is used at least three times in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. It's used in Romans 1, 6, 17, in Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews 10, 38. The righteous will live by faith. The just shall live by faith. So what does it mean to live by faith? Well, it means many things, but here in Habakkuk, living by faith means to take time regularly to be still and to reflect on who God is. In chapter 2, verse 20, Habakkuk says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Let all the earth be still before him. In Psalm 46.10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. You know, when I used to read that verse as a kid, I thought being still meant to be uh, to sit still. You know, those inspired words that mothers used to utter in church as they embedded their fingernails in our legs. <laughs> be still, you know. Sit still. But that's not what this means. In the Hebrew text, to be still means to relax, to let go, to cease your striving. And by the way, it doesn't mean to go to sleep, okay? <laughs> God is saying to Habakkuk, and he's really saying it to us, stop trying to figure it all out. Stop trying to fix it all yourself. Be still, let go, and trust me. Notice again, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. He's calling us to reflect on his character. He's calling us to know who he is so that we can put our confidence in him. I mean, isn't it true that it's hard to trust a person that you don't know? Well, the only way that you can learn to trust someone is to get to know them. And God's saying here, you are never going to know me as long as you just keep striving, as long as you just keep going 140 miles an hour, and you never sit still and come to know who I am and reflect on my character. So here we see Habakkuk at different points in this book reminding himself of who God is and reflecting on the character of God. 
and finding strength through that. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And Habakkuk here is reflecting on the sovereignty of God. The deer that Habakkuk refers to here is a mountain climbing deer known for its sure and its steady feet. It is steady on the most treacherous terrain. And this is God's promise to us. He is our sovereign God, which means he is in control. There is nothing that happens to us that he isn't aware of. In other words, he does not look the other way when trouble comes our way. He is fully aware. We may feel like he's deserted us, but he hasn't. He's there. Like the prisoner wrote on the walls of a concentration camp. He wrote, I believe in the sun, even though it does not shine. I believe in love, even when it's not showing. I believe in God, even when he is silent. God may not get us out of the troubles of life, but as long as we lean on him in faith, he promises to get us through those times of trouble. You know, as difficult as it may be to believe that God is in control in times of suffering, you know, my hope and my faith would be devastated if, if I were to believe that God is off playing golf somewhere or he's off you know, over his head trying to sort out a problem on, on some other part of the universe. And while he's busy doing that, he is totally unaware of what I'm going through. Matthew 8, 28, 20, Jesus promised that he would always be with us. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, God says he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you've ever faced death, then you'll know what I mean when I say that the greatest struggle that you have when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, the greatest struggle you have is one of loneliness. You feel all alone. You can have family, you can have friends all around you, but you feel all alone because you're entering into that space that no one can enter into but you and God. You and God. God's presence and reality becomes more real when you're in the valley than anywhere else. I love Psalm 23 that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me. No one else can walk that valley with you, but he can. 
You will never hear from God more closely. You will never know him more deeply than in the valley. If you're open to him. Corrie ten Boom knew something about tragedy and suffering. She lived with a courageous faith in the, the, the most terrible of human circumstances. She was in a Nazi concentration camp filled with brutality, suffering, and death. And when she was finally set free from that concentration camp, one of the things she said is that there is no pit so deep that God isn't deeper still. And what she's saying is that sometimes pain and tragedy feels like this bottomless pit. You're, you're falling and all you see is blackness and it feels like God is nowhere to be found. But Corey, as well as Habakkuk, reminds us that even in the pits of tragedy and suffering, God is still there. Yes, the pain is real, but God is equally real. We see only the present. It's kind of like we're, you know, on the sideline and we're watching a parade and we see only what's in front of us. God, as it were, is kind of up in the Goodyear blimp and he sees the entire parade from the beginning to the end. His perspective is totally different than ours. And that's why he calls on you and me to trust him. To trust him even when he's silent, even, even when there are no answers. And so God calls Habakkuk to be still and find strength and hope in his sovereignty. The Bible also teaches that our God is totally good. And back in chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk says this, O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? And then notice he says, we will not die. What? You know, he's just affirmed several aspects of God's character. He's everlasting. He's the Holy One. And then he says, we will not die. Habakkuk reminds himself of the goodness of God here. Even though he doesn't understand the ways of God or even agree with the method of God's judgment on his people Israel, he has complete confidence in the wisdom and in the goodness of God and also in the promise of God that he, God, would bless the whole world one day through the people of Israel. Remember way back when we studied the early part of Genesis. God made a covenant with Abraham and he said, through you and your descendants, I will bless the whole world one day. And of course, he was referring to Jesus. And Habakkuk remembered that promise right here. And as a result, he was able to say with confidence, oh yes, I guess my people are going to face judgment and they're going to go through some horrendous suffering, but God is not going to completely destroy them because he's promised to do a great thing through them that will bless the whole world. And through that, Habakkuk found peace in the midst of the turmoil that was there. That's what he meant when he said, we will not die. He was referring to his people. 
they will not be wiped out as a nation. In John 19, verse 10, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And what Jesus is saying here to Pilate is, if my Father in heaven wouldn't allow you to order my crucifixion, you couldn't. And all of that means, even though God is not the author of evil or suffering, he will allow it to come our way to accomplish good from it, either in us or through us. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now let me take a moment and lay out very quickly what this verse says and what it doesn't say. First of all, this verse does not say that everything that happens is good, because it isn't. You remember last week I made reference to Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept because he knew the world was broken, that death is bad. It was not part of God's original plan. Not everything that happens is good. Secondly, this verse does not say that God causes everything that happens. He doesn't. Thirdly, this verse does not say that everything will turn out okay for everyone. It won't. And fourthly, what this verse does, does say is that all things happen to Christians. In other words, Tim Keller says there are those who teach that if we love and serve God, then we will not have as many bad things happen to us as other people. And he says that's just not true. He says all things happen to people on this planet that happen to people on this planet can happen to people who love God. Fifthly, God is never malicious in his dealing with us. Whatever he does, he does for our ultimate good. God's purpose, according to this verse, is to make us like his son, Jesus Christ. And so if we love God... He will use everything that happens in life, be it good, be it bad, be it ugly, and he will use it to mold us, to shape us, to polish us into the image of Jesus Christ. His ultimate objective is to make you and me like Jesus, to give us Christ's compassion, Christ's courage, patience, goodness, his very character. That is God's ultimate objective. Again, Tim Keller says, if God withholds good things, things that you think are good, they would only be good for the short term. In the long term, from eternity's point of view, they would be terrible for you, and that's why God withholds them. On the other hand, God will only allow bad things into your life things that God knows are bad, in order to cure you of things that could destroy you in the long term. And so, for example, while accumulating wealth or self-centered living may feel great in the short term, 
God knows it will destroy you in the long term. So here in Romans 8, 28, God is not promising us better life circumstances if we love him. He's not promising us, you know, the good life, more money, more possessions, more power or pleasure. Because he knows if we don't hold these things with an open hand, they will actually destroy us in the long term. He's not promising us better life circumstances as defined by our world. He's promising us a better life as defined by him. A life like Jesus. God's promising in this verse, he's promising you and me a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of humility, a life of integrity, a life of nobility, greatness, adventure, and eternal impact for God. He's promising us a life that will last forever with him. You see, that's why Habakkuk could say, Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, which is all another way of saying, though the stock market crashes, though my company goes bankrupt, though I lose my job, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He could say that only because he was now seeing things from God's perspective. He was looking at all that was happening and seeing how God was going to use that in his life and the life of his people and was convinced that God is good and has his best interests at heart in all things. You know, friends, life is not always good. But I affirm the words of Habakkuk that God is always good. Hold on to that when you're in the middle of a storm. When you have no answers, nothing makes sense, and you will know the joy and the peace of the Lord. Now, it's important at this point that I clarify that this teaching is not calling us to resign ourselves to fate, to resign ourselves to this attitude that says, whatever will be, will be. Which, by the way, is most religions outside of Christianity actually teach that resigning ourselves to fate. Habakkuk did not come to a place of resignation here. He came to a place of acceptance. An acceptance of God's sovereignty, of God's goodness, and also of God's purpose being fulfilled in his life. And folks, there's a big difference between resignation and acceptance. The Christian faith doesn't resign to fate. No, the Christian surrenders to God and the purposes of God in all that happens to us. Resignation says it's all over for me and lies down quietly to an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet God and says, now that you've allowed this to come into my life, Lord, what's next? What do you want to accomplish through this in me and through me? Resignation says, what a waste. I've just gone through 10 years of whatever it is, cancer or you know, uh, bankruptcy or whatever. What a waste. That's what resignation says. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? 
Elizabeth Elliot has said, the Christian accepts suffering and uses it as a springboard, a platform. Some of you may recall that Mrs. Elliot is the woman whose husband, Jim, lay face down, dead in a river with an arrow in his back, martyred for Jesus Christ by the very tribe of people that he was trying to reach out to. So what did his young wife, Elizabeth, do? Oh, she grieved and mourned, you can be sure. But out of those ashes of sorrow, she boldly declared her faith. And like Job, she said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And rather than resigning her life to fate, she turned to God and she said, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? And she took the hand of her six-year-old daughter and she took the hand of her friend, Marge Saint, the wife of another missionary who was martyred alongside her husband, Jim. She took her daughter's hand, her friend's hand, and they all walked back into that jungle and to that tribe. Only this time, they weren't killed. They were accepted. And they translated the Bible, and in time, that entire tribe became followers of Jesus Christ. And years later, Marge Saint's daughter, at the age of 15, stood in the river where her father had died, and she was baptized by the very man who had killed her father, a man who is now the pastor of that tribe of people. You see, that's what happens when you live by faith rather than by your feelings. You say, Lord, I may not understand this, or Lord, I may not even like this. In fact, this doesn't feel good at all. But I trust you. In what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? This is the biblical prescription for joy and peace while in the middle of the storm. When trouble comes knocking, we have a choice. We can run from God. We can blame God. Or we can run to God and be honest with him about our doubts and fear. We can try to take matters into our own hands and miss God's very best for us, or we can trust God and let him transform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, I may not be able to tell you why you're, you've had to face certain storms in your life, but as one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I can tell you from personal experience that whatever the problems, whatever the crisis, you need not face it alone. We may not know how it's all going to turn out, even as Habakkuk, in this journey of his, didn't know how it was all going to turn out. But we know the God who will work it out for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And friends, a day is coming when we're all going to realize the truth that knowing God is so much better than knowing the outcomes.
And we're going to discover that when all that we have left is God, that God is enough. And you see, that is the question that God asks you and me now and asks us always. Am I enough? Am I enough for you? Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder, Lord, to be still and to know that you are God. To remind ourselves in those still moments that we serve a sovereign God, an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God who does not walk away from our troubles and our trials but is very much aware of them and is there alongside us, walking with us. A God who is filled with grace and a God who's filled with love and goodness. Forgive us for the times that we have not always trusted you or believed you. And instead, Lord, we've blamed you and run from you and you're best for our lives. I pray, Lord, for those among us who are enduring suffering, pain, some other hardship right now. Lord, that you will touch them, that you will bring healing to their situation right now. But Lord, I also pray that you would do a work in their heart and in their life, in all of our hearts, in light of today's teaching from Habakkuk. Lord, I pray that all of us would come to that place where even though we may, have, we may not have any answers and we may find ourselves bewildered and confused by what you are doing or aren't doing, Lord, that we would have a deep conviction that you are sovereign and that you are not oblivious to our situations. That we would have a deep conviction that you are good and that you have our best interests at heart in all things. And you want to do something wonderful in us, even through the storms that we're facing. I pray, Lord, that we will not embrace a spirit of resignation, but that we would see in all that you've allowed to come our way, Lord, an opportunity to do something or to be someone through whom you can make a difference. for our ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.